Welcome to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of Kiss Organics. This is the podcast where we discuss the cutting edge of organic growing from a science-based perspective and draw on top experts from around the industry to share their wisdom and knowledge. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. You can also sign up for our newsletters on our website as it's the best way to find out when new episodes and blog posts come out, as well as any discounts or coupon codes. This week's podcast is especially important to anyone making a living off of farming or cannabis cultivation. To many people today, using the words factory and farm in the same sentence is nothing short of sacrilege. In many cases, though, the same sound business practices apply whether you're producing cars or cannabis. Ben Hartman has found that incorporating the best new ideas from business into his farming can drastically cut out waste and increase profits, making the farms more environmentally and economically sustainable. Working smarter, not harder, also prevents the kind of burnout that startup farmers or growers often encounter in the face of long, hard, backbreaking labor. Ben and his wife Rachel own and operate Clay Bottom Farm in Goshen, Indiana, where they make their living growing and selling specialty crops on less than one acre. Their food is sold locally to restaurants and cafeterias, at a farmer's market, and through a CSA program. In 2017, Ben was named one of the 50 emerging green leaders in the United States by Grist. I took a long shot reaching out to Ben. I know that cannabis cultivation can be off-putting to many traditional farmers. I was honored that he was willing to come on the show to talk about his book and the concept of lean farming. I cannot stress enough how important this book can be in changing your business for the better. I've been telling all my friends and growers about it and made some massive changes on our farm based on the principles outlined in his books. Without further ado, though, here's this week's interview. Well, thanks, Ben. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show today. Hey, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so for my listeners, I heard Ben at the Focus on Farming conference that was local to me this winter and heard about his book and the concepts have already had a huge impact on my farm. And I don't want to get into all the details of the changes we've made because of your book, but we made some pretty major financial and philosophical commitments to these concepts. Okay. And I think every farmer needs to read your book. So I want to start off by giving listeners, though, a little bit of information about your own personal history. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, I grew up on a northern Indiana 500-acre corn and soybean farm. And our farm was just down the road from Earl Butts, uh, who was Richard M. Nixon's Secretary of Agriculture. And he was uh, made famous for saying, get big or get, get out. And that's how you're going to make it in agriculture. And so that is the mindset with which I entered farming. And so we, my wife and I got married and we purchased a five acre property and it was my thinking that this is a stepping stone property and we'd eventually, you know, expand to 10 acres then 20 acres and then, and then work our way up uh, from there. Because when I was growing up, the metrics for success, uh, you're a successful farmer in Northern Indiana. If every year you got a bigger tractor, every year you rented or grew on more land. Every year you put up another grain bin. And if you didn't, then something was wrong with your farm. And so that's the mindset with which I entered farming and to my detriment. Because we had we what the type of farming I wanted to do was small scale and local 
uh, vegetables were for selling direct to customers. And it was labor intense. And it didn't take us long before I realized that just constantly expanding just wasn't going to work on a number of number of levels. First, it meant that we were having to find more accounts further away from home and drive to Chicago, drive to Detroit or Indianapolis to find accounts for food. And so is stretching the definition of being a local farm. And then also, uh, just from a psychological standpoint, it was just constant stress. And it kind of hit home. I hit home one afternoon. And actually, let me I tell you this story here of how I, I tell you how a greenhouse ended up on the roof of our barn. Is every year we used to have what we call pizza and weed party. And it was a name that we cleverly chose to lure college students out to our farm. And we'd, our, we'd a greenhouse or two. And then we'd feed them pizza afterwards. And so one after, so this one, about 10 years ago, we we're getting ready for our pizza and weed party. And we'd set out all the tools. And we, Rachel and I went in the house for a break. And then it was a light breeze in the morning. However, by mid-afternoon, it, the winds were starting to pick up. And eventually, the slow wind turned into a gale force wind. And we heard, Rachel heard a thunk. And she ran to the window and she said, Ben, you better come see what's going on here. And so I ran to the window and saw the green, our greenhouse had landed on our roof. And had it the had the barn not blocked the greenhouse, it would have ended up in northern Michigan or Canada. I don't know, but um, and it was because we had. And so, part of the lean system, you're supposed to ask the question why five times, whenever something goes wrong, to get at the you know you want to get at the root of every problem. And so, what is the reason that greenhouse ended up on the roof? Uh, the first when you when we the first time we asked that question why. We say, well, it's because there's a high power wind. However, you ask that question enough times, it, it, so you ask it again. The second reason is uh, that it was under-engineered. And you ask, well, well what's the reason? It, then why, was it under-engineered? Well, because I was in a hurry building the greenhouse. Anyhow, by the time you ask why five times, the root cause of the greenhouse being on the roof of our barn uh, was, uh, was simply that I was overworked and working too fast, trying to expand the farm too quickly. And after that happened, we realized, hey, we need to maybe think about our business model, and maybe there's a different way of running and growing a business, and and that's where the lean system entered our thinking. Can you talk a little bit about what it, lean manufacturing is, so people kind of have a foundation of what where you started this idea of lean farming? Uh huh. And just I want to back up just a minute, just to uh, clarify kind of who we are at this point. We uh, we raise organic vegetables. Uh, and we do it on less than an acre of land, and all of our accounts are within a mile and a half of our farm. So we're kind of an uber-local micro farm, and we make a comfortable living, over $100,000 a year doing that. Um, so lean, what lean manufacturing essentially amounts to is putting on a set of eyeglasses and noticing. You read a lot about seeing and vision in the lean literature, but essentially you're noticing when am I adding value for the customer. In other words, when am I touching my product and causing the value of my product to go up? And then, when am I contributing to muda, which is a term we roughly translate as waste. Uh, however, it's essentially any activity that's, that is happening on your farm that's not directly adding value for your customer. And uh, the Japanese very precise culture, and they identified seven specific types of mudas. And now they've added three or four new types of mudas. 
Um, and we just have one word for Muda in English. We just call it waste. Uh, however, uh, it's like uh, how some cultures, they have 600 or more words for reindeer or whatever. The Japanese have thought more carefully uh, about non-value adding process than we have. And so essentially what you want to do is maximize the amount of time and effort going into value adding activities and minimize or better yet eliminate all the waste activities. Yeah. So before hearing you speak and reading, um, reading your book, I had, I had heard of lean manufacturing. In fact, one of our, um, main people at our farm was telling me about how we should incorporate this into the farm. And I was familiar with Toyota and all, you know, some of what they had done. And to me, there was a huge disconnect. I wasn't able to, in my brain, go from what Toyota does in a manufacturing facility to all the different aspects and things going on in my farm. It felt like there were too many variables. Uh -huh. So what your book really does is connects the dot between that lean manufacturing and then this thing, this concept of lean farming, which is that something that you coined? Is this your term? Uh, and actually, no, because I, uh, farms in Asia, Asia and in Scandinavia have been using lean systems thinking for several dec decades. It's just new to North America here. Um, and I, to clarify too, they say lean came from manufacturing. However, the first workers uh, at Toyota in the 1930s were rice farmers. And it's these rice farmers who brought this lean way of thinking to the factory floor. And I think that's part of the reason that the seven types of waste that they originally identified at Toyota, these are waste that are ubiquitous on farms. And one has to wonder uh, if agricultural thinking didn't influence Toyota and, and wasn't one of the reasons why Toyota eventually became eight, point times, eight times more profitable you know, than, G, than GM and Ford. And, uh, and I think farmers, especially in 17th and 18th century Japanese farmers, they just had to be shrewd and they had to, they had to farm, farm, you know, or else they weren't going to make it. And there are a lot of historical sociological reasons for that. But anyhow, so that's, a, it's actually originally ad, as much an agricultural system as it is a manufacturing system. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Can we dive in a little bit to the, the five basic principles of lean before we talk too much about Muda? And, uh, you have some great examples here in your book starting with, uh, is it Siri? Uh-huh, yeah. You mean for the 5S process? Yes, yes. Okay. And so lean is can roughly be thought of as a series of, there are four basic lean concepts that fit most appropriately in agriculture. And the first is to apply this 5S organization system. And the second is, value, is, is identifying value from your customer and then getting rid of the mootness. Then the fourth step would be continuous improvement. And so we can begin by talking about that first step, which, is, which I think is the place to begin for most farms, is to use this 5S process. And essentially, there's five steps to getting a workplace uh, or, organized according to the lean system. And it all goes back to when am I adding value, when am I contributing to waste. And so the first step of that 5S process is called Siri or sort. And essentially what that means is you go around your property and every object on that, on, in your work environment, you ask a simple question, which is, did you add value for a customer in the past, and for cannabis, say in the past uh, growing season? Did you add value for a customer? Whether it's a fork or a hoe or uh, you know, a planter container or whatever. And if you, str if you struggle to come up with an answer, if you have to think it over, then it's probably time to get rid of that item, okay? 
And so at Toyota, they're very ruthless about the only items in the workplace were those that are being used on a daily basis for adding value. And we do this twice a year on our farm. We go around to every object. And some say you should actually physically touch the object. We don't physically touch every object, but we, we at least come close to it, physically close to it. And we ask that question, do, did this row cover, did this hoe, did this traction implement add value in the past six months? And if the answer is no, then we get it off the property. And we've been pretty ruthless about this. I don't like to have stuff on our property. And uh, we farm with enough tools that would fit in a, a small size pickup. And at, so as you're doing this, you want to choose tools that you want to farm with a few tools uh, that, add, uh, that add a lot of value, that perform many functions. And so we love, for instance, uh, a hoe that can be a grubbing hoe. That's, that's a strong hoe for you know, flipping soil if you need to. And yet it has uh, a fine point so we can use it for finer cultivating. Uh, or the B BCS where you can swap out multiple implements and, and can perform a lot of functions. We're, we're always on the lookout for how can we farm with fewer tools and get more work accomplished. Now, that kind of leads us into the next, um, the next one, which is set in order. Because when you say fewer tools, you are removing tools, but you're also putting the tools where they're most useful and even duplicating tools. Can you touch on that a little bit? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. So we used to, for instance, we used to have a centralized tool storage area, a tool shed, like a lot of farms would have. And the first thing we did, a lean consultant came out and said, you really need to take a stick of dynamite to that tool shed because it's adding a lot of muda to your process. And the reason is for every process we had to do, say, prune tomatoes, We'd have to walk 200, 300 paces to the tool shed, grab the pruners, then walk back to the greenhouse and prune the tomatoes and then return the pruners. We'd put in as much work uh, going to get the pruners and returning them as we did actually pruning the tomatoes. And so what we started to do, and the lean system says to do this, you want to hang your tools at eye level, eye level locations as close as possible to their points of use. And so now we have magnets uh, spread out across the property that hold knives and uh, pruners that we use on a regular basis. And every greenhouse, we have four greenhouses, every one has a tool set up, and the tools we need in that greenhouse are attached to the greenhouse somewhere. I, I got to say that's a huge one for me. I literally a light bulb went off because I know for a fact, like some projects, I would, I would spend 15, 20 minutes just looking for a tool because it wasn't replaced. It would be on the entire other side of the property from where it needs to be. And the idea of having an extra set of pruners or extra sets of shovels or whatever implement tool I'm implementing in the location where I'm going to use it can save not just my time, but my employees time, which I'm paying labor on. And yeah, um, that was a big one. So we're working on, on getting all of the right tools in the right places. And I know that's going to save us a ton of time. Awesome. And I think it's okay to duplicate tools. Uh, we say if a tool costs $50 or less, we're going to probably duplicate that tool. And so, for instance, every greenhouse, uh, we own uh, probably 15 or so kn knives that we'd harvest with, even though we're only going to use three or four knives at a time. But every greenhouse has a couple of them attached to the greenhouse uh, so that for the reason that they're physically closer to where we're using them. And that small investment is paid off. Now, we don't buy a tractor, a separate tractor for every greenhouse. You know, there's a limit to tool duplicating. But the point is to keep your tools close to your workstations. Yeah, I'll put up some pictures. You also have some mobile workstation examples in your book that are really interesting, too, uh -huh. um, that show that you can you can move the tools around with the worker so that they're easily accessible and uh, easy to see when you're getting low on supplies as well. Uh-huh. Yeah, and Darren, uh, Darren Volmer, an excellent farmer up in Wisconsin, 
uh, he would have more workers than we have, several dozen workers during uh, peak you know, harvest season. And what he does is he would have a five-gallon bucket uh, with an organizing basket attached to it. And so every worker gets a bucket with precisely the tools they need, and they carry that bucket around with them, and they're responsible for those tools in the bucket. But the the point is that to not to to make sure tools are where they belong or in your hands. They're either in their place or in your hands, and there's no third option. That's great. And that leads us to our next concept, which is shine. Uh-huh. Yeah. So like I said, uh, there's a lot of language about, you read a lot about vision and seeing in the lean literature. And the idea behind the shine concept is you want to clean your tool, your, your workspaces with a tooth, toothbrush and make sure they're well lit. Your most used tools, workspaces should be very clean. And the reason uh, behind that is you want to see when waste is creeping in. And so with, with uh, cannabis production, you want to think about when are the steps in my process when uh, there's the most defect happening, you know, when you're cleaning or maybe it's in, in packaging or whatever. You want to make sure those spaces are very clean and very well lit, too, so you, so you can see your work. And the, I, a principle here, too, is you want to perform size oh, in short, high-frequency spurts. And instead of long, low frequency. Let me explain the difference. Uh, short, high frequency means that every time we're done, you know, watching 100 pounds of lettuce in the processing area or hosing 100 pounds or 100 bunches of carrots, we're going to restore that processing, processing area to zero. What that means, we're going to take it all the way back to clean. Uh, so that's clean condition. And we hang pictures up in our processing area so that there's no ambiguity about what zero looks like in that processing area. And so every time we're done working in there, you know, every, every hour, 90 minute chunk of time that we're done working, we're going to take it back to zero is the language we use. And what we used to do, the long, low frequency method would be to, we just junk up the farm from say March until Thanksgiving. And then we thought, Hey, we'll have the time and energy all winter to clean it. But we never did. It always just every year just got more cluttered. And what which, which happens, so when it comes to these first three steps, sorting, setting in order, and cleaning, the thing I tell people is that you don't have to do it all in one weekend. We did, actually. About a week, we just we got several wagon loads off of our property, several tons of junk literally off our property. We, just, we did it in one big push. Uh, however, you don't have to. What you can do is just make sure that you're headed in the right direction because the trajectory that you're, you're, you're on is ultimately the most important thing. Because trajectory is a very powerful psychological force. It's the most powerful force in the world, I think. Because if you think about it, your, your farm is headed in one of two directions. You're either getting more cluttered every growing season or you're getting more decluttered. You're only headed in one of two directions, and you just want to know you're headed the right direction. Yeah, I think this is a really important step, and it's one that we are – taking baby steps on ourselves. You know, I, I mentioned to you before we started the podcast, I've actually brought in uh, some really large dumpsters that we filled. We got rid of uh, a whole bunch of plastic pots that we were, we'd been storing, a whole bunch of other, um, other just literally just junk that we needed to remove off the property or things we weren't using. And the, the psychological effects of this has been really big. The staff is, uh, has a cleaner space to work in. They have take more pride in their work. Uh-huh. It's not 
there's a there's a psychological impact and that was something that uh, I learned from you was the I didn't realize the psychological impact of having a pile of junk the amount of uh, stress it created and the fact I had to keep thinking about it over and over again but once it's off the property I can let it go um, emotionally and that was a big deal uh -huh, absolutely I'm reading a book right now called deep work and I'd highly recommend it for anyone who wants to delve deeper in these concepts but uh, the idea is that we're actually happiest and we're the most productive when we have just what we need in front of us and no more. And especially in the cell phone, in the, in the smartphone era, they say the average office worker uh, experiences some sort of disruption every 15 minutes. It's, and on the farm, that, that happens too. And whether it be you're disrupted because you can't find the tool you're looking for or disrupted because your cell phone goes off, there's just constant interruption, constant disruption. And we need to get into what lean, language Lean would use is we call a flow. We need to get, enter into a workflow in order to achieve maximum productivity. This means we're working for about an hour to 90 minutes without interruption. Uh, and once you get to that point, you can repeat that process of getting into a deep flow. Uh, it's, a, it's, fun, it's been phenomenal on our farm how much more productive uh, we are. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, I'm always being interrupted and it is hard to maintain your train of thought. And there's good studies out there that show that we're, we're not mm -hmm. able to multitask as effectively as we actually think we are. Um, uh -huh. No, we're not. So that's that is a big deal. <laughs> and as we continue to disrupt our work, it actually changes uh, the neural pathways in our brain. We actually change how we think and it becomes uh, we can do long term damage to our brain and make it long-term more difficult to enter that state of deep flow. So I think it's very important and something that's overlooked often. We think that uh, multitasking is often, her is often heralded as a, uh, something you want to work towards, like the open office concept that uh, uh, Google's new offices are just totally open, and uh, Facebook, too, would have open offices. And, uh, but the reality is that you, you open yourself up to a lot of distract, di distraction, and which, can, which is detrimental ultimately to the bottom line. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And the other thing you mentioned that I wanted to touch on was the idea of using photos. And this is a brilliant idea because the amount of time it takes to explain and train an employee on what a space should look like or the amount of time for them to read all the every step if you want to write things out is is pretty detrimental compared to them being able to just look at a photo and say this is what it looks like now this is what it needs to look like and make those changes uh-huh and that's a good segue in uh segue into the the fourth step of the 5s process which is standardization and so when you perform those first three steps sorting setting an order and shining you want to do it the same you want to repeat the same steps especially with shining uh, and so photos really do communicate a thousand words, much, and it's much more efficient. So, uh, like I said, we hang photos of what our clean hosing station should look like. And then I don't have to tell workers every time, hey, set these crates over here and uh, set these boxes over here and mop the floor. We just say, hey, make it look like what the picture is. Yeah, that's great. And then let's touch on the last one there, sustain. Uh, yeah, so since what Toyota used Sustaining means you want to make sure that these this 5S process is part of deep is deeply ingrained into your workplace culture, and there are a couple ways of doing this. What Toyota used to do is literally send someone around to each workstation and give a numerical rating uh, based on how closely the workers were using the 5S system, and then give them bonuses. 
Uh, um, I think one of the best ways to sustain the practice on a small farm is through uh, hanging lots of pictures up around the farm and asking people to keep the farm uh, looking like what those pictures uh, look like. And it's also sometimes helpful to have a third person, say, not you as the farm manager or owner, but have a worker give an audit, give an occasional audit, maybe once a month or uh, something you could do once a week even, uh, just do a quick walk around and give a numerical rating uh, to how closely you're using the 5S system so you discipline yourself to make it happen. That's great. Let's jump into the next section, which talks a little bit about what value means and how you identify that for your for your customers. And I love that story that you, you told at the conference regarding uh, the Toyota employee. Uh-huh. It, so we have a, this thinking uh, in the U- U.S. anyhow uh, that we know more than our customers. And Steve Jobs Steve used this, it was famous for not listening to customers. And he used to say, I know what are, my customers want more than they know what they want. And that might be true in, in specialty tech industry. There might be some exceptions. However, for most businesses, especially in agriculture, uh, the, but the best phrasing I've heard is from Jim Womack. He wrote the book Lean Thing. He says, you want to start with a customer and work backwards from there. So, so begin with a customer and work backwards from there. And so the customer is the only force that is allowed to identify value in the lean system. And so you want to be very precise about identifying value, which means you want to listen very, very closely to your customers. And the Japanese have this tradition called Genshi Gimbutsu, which means up close and personal observation to thoroughly understand the situation. So Genshi Gimbutsu. And so one of my favorite stories of Genshi Gimbutsu in practice is uh, in 2004, it was, uh, they were, uh, Toyota said it's time to redesign the Sienna. And Toyota was not, they were not the first in the minivan market. They were kind of trailing behind. Uh, however, they quickly took over the minivan market because of what this one engineer did. And so they sent him over to North America, their primary market, and he told them to drive a van in all parts of Mexico, Canada, and the U.S. And he spent the better part of a year doing this, closely observing how we're using the vans over, our vans over here. And so he noticed that in Santa Fe, New Mexico, for instance, he had trouble turning. It needed a tighter turning radius than the current Sienna had. And so he called home and said, we need to tighten the turning radius by 15 degrees to get up and down the alleyways in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And so they did it. They tightened up that turning radius. And then he noticed in the western part of the U.S. that we drove long distances and we were, we were eating like four-course meals in our vans. And this wasn't a cultural tradition in Japan. And so he invented this beautiful flip-up console that this current Sienna has. And he put something like 500 cup holders in there. So there's no excuse not to have, uh, not to be drinking while you're driving. And then my favorite example is he went to Ann Arbor, Michigan, a couple hours north of our farm. And he went to the parking lot of a Home Depot. And he didn't go in. He just stood in the parking lot and observed. And what he noticed was that people were trying to stuff four by eight sheets of drywall or plywood or whatever into the van, and they just couldn't quite get it in. And so they'd bungee the back hatch or try to strap it to the roof, and they became very frustrated. And so he called home at that point and said, from that parking lot, he said, we need to get a four by eight sheet of whatever in the van, the next van that we produce. And sure enough, if you own a minivan produced after that point in history, then the odds are very high that you can get a 4 by 8 sheet of plywood in it. 
and doesn't matter whether it's Toyota or Honda or GM or Ford, everyone follows you. But my point is uh, that notice how closely they're observing their customers. This is close personal observation and then acting on those observations. And their level of observation, very minute, very precise. And, and Rachel and I had to admit, we heard stories like this when we started looking into the, uh, the lean system. We had to admit we'd never come close to taking our customers that seriously. Mm-hmm. And so one of the first things we did after we'd clean up the farm using that 5S system uh, was to perform this Genshi Kombucha process with our customers and really get to know what they wanted. So here's the three questions. This, I'll uh, summarize the whole process with three questions. Essentially, you ask, number one, what do they want? What specific products are they asking for? Number two is when do they want it? And the third is how much and what amounts do they want it? So very simple questions. So what do they want, when do they want, and how much? And yet most people in, uh, in most cannabis producers, uh, most vegetable growers, uh, corn and soybean farmers certainly uh, are not taking the baby step it would take to get, get, get uh, precise answers to those questions. And it really hinders your business. Yeah, so basically what you're looking at there is what add, how, do you, how do you identify value and then what adds value and then what does not add value. And then you're essentially trying to focus on uh, ways to raise raise the value or do do more activities that add value and less activities that don't add value. Um, can you give a concrete example of something you did on your farm that was a change based on customer response or customer feedback? Uh-huh. Uh, we, for a number of years, ran a CSA, uh, which means Community Supported Agriculture. And what this means is customers paid us at the beginning of the growing season, and then we gave them a box of food every week. And at first, we said you had to come out to the farm and pick it up. And we gave them a couple hours on Friday afternoons. And we, we began this process was we asked those three questions to our customers. And, and those questions obviously helped us determine what to put in the CSA boxes, how big to make those CSA boxes. And we altered the you know, amounts and, and, and the items that went into those boxes. Uh, however, we heard most feedback was that we love actually what you're giving us. However, it's inconvenient to come pick up Friday afternoons. Uh, at your farm. And so we started using pickup locations around town. And so they wouldn't have to make that 10 mile trip. And so at the end of the next growing season, we asked those questions again, and they said, we love the pickup locations. Uh, However, it's hard to get there just on Friday afternoons. And so the following growing season, the third growing season, we installed coolers at those pickup locations. And so they could pick up whenever during the week. We told them we're going to deliver Friday afternoon, but you come get it whenever it's convenient. And then at the end of that season, we asked the same questions, and they said, we love the coolers. that makes pickup much easier. However, it's just actually still kind of hard to go to the grocery store and then go to your pickup location. It's like we're doing our groceries in two places. And so what we did is we asked our customers, where do, you most, where do most of you do your grocery shopping? And then we partnered with that grocery store to use them as a CSA pickup location. It was their local food co-op. And so that our customers could do their grocery shopping, get their CSA boxes in one trip, save a trip. And then we asked those questions again. And, we, and, and, and now what we're hearing is we love that being able to pick up at the, at this, at the supermarket, saves our trip. We, uh, you're giving us the right amount. Uh, we love the ingredients that are in, in there. However, we want more. Uh, we need some help with cooking in the home. We just don't have time to cook everything. 
And so now we're partnering with the deli department of our co of our co co op to create a sort of local Blue Apron option, in which we're going to put a whole meal package together. It'll mo- be mostly our vegetables. However, the deli would maybe bake a loaf of bread. Uh, or add some condiments and 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 put a whole recipe, whole, uh, several recipes, or put a whole meal together, and it'll be a Blue Apron model form. Anyhow, so the point is, that's how we retain CSA customers. Most CSAs lose more than half their customers on an annual basis, and there are a lot of external reasons for this. Uh, there's a lot more competition and a lot of more places to get organic food than there was 20 years ago when CSAs were beginning. Uh, however, there's a lot of, there are internal practices a farm can do to keep your customers, and that that's that's one of them. You know, I learned this lesson the hard way. Literally tens of thousands of dollars I've wasted in. I started off with an edible nursery with all these permaculture plants that are really really awesome plants. Unfortunately, no one in my community really cared. Uh, they didn't care that I had all these really cool plants that I thought was really fascinating or some of my friends thought were fascinating. So they sat on the farm. I had to water them. I had to care for them. Uh, people came in and bought the same things, blueberries, apples, you know, stuff they knew. And occasionally I would sell some of these other plants, but I had to lean down at my nursery to what was actually selling. And I didn't even really know this concept at the time. It was just something I discovered. In addition, we were growing a lot of these really cool, rare vegetables and heirloom plants but again, no one was buying them. They were they were going to waste because uh-huh. I wasn't looking at what the customer was valuing. I was taking my values and trying to impose them on the community. And so, uh-huh. you know, having pounds and pounds of organic habanero peppers doesn't do any good if there's no one in the area that wants to eat habanero peppers. So, uh huh, absolutely. I. <laughs> I made this mistake year after year, and so I'm really excited that we we've kind of been forced into this process as we've learned the hard way uh, what not to do Um, and i'm hoping other people can avoid making these mistakes so don't don't necessarily grow the plant that you want to grow grow the plant that your customers are going to value and want want you to grow so now we're growing uh, some tulsi basils that are holy basils for the local indian community as well as some some certain eggplants that they've requested so we're going on asking them okay what we can do to support them rather than what we what they can do to support us. There you have it. Uh-huh. Yeah, another way to say that is to that the customer is the only one who defines value. And uh, it, they call it owner distortion, owner value distortion, via the technical term for what happens in a lot of businesses where your own fascinations get in the way of profits because it's, the customer should be out ahead pulling you along. One thing that we try to do is get all our orders before we even purchase our seeds. At the beginning of the year, sit down with all our chefs and and uh, map out who's going to purchase, who's going to eat every single you know crop that we produce, and then we'll get our seeds ordered and go from there. That's great, and I'd like to use that as a transition into our next uh, our next topic, which would be Muda, which I think is the most fascinating aspect of of lean. Mm-hmm. And you list ten tools for minimizing waste, which is essentially what what Muda means. Uh, can we talk about each of those? Just touch on them briefly, starting with the idea of minimizing your movement. Uh, yeah. So one of so like I said, the Japanese identify these types of waste in a in a production environment, and motion waste is is the sixth type. It's not first on the list. Uh, however, it's prevalent on every farm, and the idea behind motion waste is you want to actually count the number of times you touch your product. And like I said, you want to achieve what they call smooth flow. 
And so you want to touch your product as few times as possible. In the grocery industry, they say you're allowed three touches. For instance, uh, selling a box of kicks. Uh, you unload the kicks from the wholesale distributor, put it on the shelf, customer picks it up, you check check out. So you, and the customer checks out. So they say as a grocer, you're allowed three touches. And if you touch it, if you can get by with just one touch, then you're making money. If you touch it two times, then you're probably breaking even. And if you get to three touches, you're probably losing money. And I think on farms, we're allowed probably five or six touches, a few more. Uh, however, not many more touches than that. So the first tip I would have is to just count and you know uh, map out your process, you know what steps are involved in production, and then how many times did you touch your product before it got into the hand of the customer, and try to get it down to four or five touches. Yeah, can you take me through that process, like with a uh, carrots or or a tomato or maybe lettuce, to kind of describe what that looks like? Uh huh. And so it, uh, I'll use an example of head lettuce. Uh, what we used to do was say we'd have 200 heads of lettuce that need to be picked and processed and, and sent off to your customer. I'll tell you our old process is we would harvest those 200 heads of lettuce. Someone would harvest and then take them up to the processing area. So there's a touch. Someone else would pick up each head of lettuce and clean each head of lettuce, strip off the bad leaves. There's a touch. And someone else would pick it up again and dunk each head of lettuce and wash it. So we're up to three touches. And then someone would pick it up again and, and wrap plastic around it or tie a band around it. Uh, and then someone would package it, put it in the final packaging for the customer. And then put it into the walk-in cooler. So we're up to five touches. And then someone would take it out of the walk-in cooler and put it in our delivery vehicle uh, and drive to town. Six touches. And then unload it from the vehicle, deliver it to the customer. Seven touches, okay? I'm being ultra, I'm being very specific here because it's really incredible how much more profitable we are after we've wrapped our mind around this concept. And so Lean would suggest using what they call a single piece flow process. In other words, could we, and so we had seven touches that added value to the lettuce. Every time we touched that lettuce, it gained uh, in value. And what Lean says to do is add as much value as possible to the product in your hand before you set it down. And uh, one way I like to word it is to harvest as market ready as possible. And so on the example of our lettuce, uh, our current process is someone cuts the head, and and as the and while the lettuce is in their hands, they strip the bad leaves off the lettuce, and then they dunk it in a bucket of water that they've taken out to the field with them. It's still in their hand. And then they give it a little shake and they'll tie a twisty or wrap it in plastic out in the field. And then they put it in the final container going to the customer out in the field. We have uh, we have wagons set up so that final containers aren't you know touching the ground and they're harvesting and placing it in the container. And so we've got we're just down to we're just still on our first touch. We haven't set down the head of the lettuce and yet we've added value in four different processes. And then the person uh, we've stopped actually using a walk-in cooler. Instead, we back up a refrigerated uh, delivery vehicle to the location the item is harvested, and we're going to load it directly into that refrigerated delivery vehicle, and within an hour, it's off to our customers. Okay, And so one of the reasons we wanted to get rid of the walk-in cooler was motion waste, because there's an there's a extra motion of putting it in the cooler and taking it out of the cooler. It's two touches. <laughs> so for most of our crops, we're getting away with three or four touches instead of seven or eight touches. And it actually has increased our profits by almost twice as much because we're spending half the amount of effort. It doesn't sound like a big change when you when you list it out. 
it sounds so stupidly simple. <laughs> Uh, stupidly simple, and yet it just uh, small changes like that make a, such a big difference. Yeah, and over the course of the year, we're talking hours and hours of savings in time. Uh huh. You use the example, I believe, in your talk of putting a letter together, you know, folding, sealing an envelope. And in my mind, when you mentioned it, my first thought was, well, you'd have three people, and the first person would put the letter in, then hand it to the next, put it down, the next person would pick it up and mm-hmm. seal the envelope with with water or, the, or lick the lick the adhesive and then put it down the last person would put the stamp on and that would be the fastest way but it's actually way more efficient for one person to do all three of those steps without setting the letter down uh-huh absolutely and i've done that when i have when i have enough time with groups i'll have a i have one person come up front and do the single piece flow process with the letter and then i'll have someone come up and do a batch and queue system which would be the where you you know fold 100 letters and then you stuff 100 letters and then you stamp a hundred letters. And it's amazing how uh, I have never, the, the single piece flow people are consistently at least twice as quick as the batch and queue people. And, and yet it's counterintuitive. Uh, we think that it's more efficient to work in large batches, but it's actually, it actually isn't. Yeah. And I think it's better for the employee because it's more interesting to do multiple steps. And I think it also reduces the amount of fatigue or risk of injury because you are moving around more and you're not doing just the same repetitive motion, or at least as repetitive. So there's a ton of benefits to it. And I, I love that idea. You also, under minimize moves, you talk about spaghetti diagrams and drawing up a picture of everywhere that you walk in a given space doing a task. Uh, can you touch on that real quick? Uh, yeah. So this is another very simple technique that a farm can use to quickly shave a bunch of mood off your process. And, and so what you do is uh, pick the uh, one or two hours when you're the busiest, when there's the most motion happening, and then have someone stand in a corner of the room or you know on a balcony where they can oversee the whole farm, and just have a blank sheet of paper and just trace motion. When did people move, and when did a product move? When was there motion on the farm? And after about 45 minutes or an hour, it's going to look like a plate of spaghetti noodles. And then what you can do is is have everyone huddle around and ask. Uh, three questions of that plate of spaghetti noodles. Uh, number one is how could we have shortened some noodles? Number two, how could we have straightened some noodles if you see curves? And the third is how could we have eliminated some noodles? And ideally, you eliminate a bunch of noodles. And we use this process. We're actually setting up a new farm right now. And we use spaghetti diagrams to help define where building should be and help set up our process in area. So we did uh, several rounds of pretend harvesting uh, head lettuce, for instance, and determine the shortest routes for the head lettuce, the straightest lines. And what it actually ultimately led us to is to build one large building, a hof, uh, in which we have our house, our processing area, a garage, a storing area, storage area, um, a potting shed. We've got a bunch of functions uh, that are in one building to eliminate a bunch of noodles. And then we kept our growing areas very close to the processing area. So there's, 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 we've eliminated as many lines of work as possible. Now, there's more types of MUDA and, and tools for reducing them. I don't want to give away everything in the book because I think it's important to visualize it and read it. Uh, so I want to I want to keep this moving along since I know we have a limited amount of time. Can we talk a little bit about uh, the idea of continuous improvement? How this process never really ends for you, and what that looks like? Uh, yeah, and especially when it comes, this is a little bit heretical with farming. 
nearly every farm book you, you read or video course or whatever, everyone thinks they figured it out. They figured out the best way to make compost or the best way to, to grow tomatoes or whatever, and they, they're going to sell you all their secrets. I mean, I actually don't, I, and my second book uh, gives you all of our production secrets. It tells you the, the, where we're at in the lean process with, with producing tomatoes and peppers and everything else. Uh, however, uh, the point is just to give you inspiration for your own lean thinking because there never is a perfect, perfect way to do something. It's always about continuously improving your process. There's always a better way to do something. The, the phrase they use in lean is no problem is a problem. If you think you have no problems, then that's that's your problem. Um, anyhow, so essentially what you uh, the essentially what continuous improvement or kaizen means is you perform the first three steps of the lean system with more precision every year, and so you get more decluttered every year. So the first step is that five S and, and organized. So you get more organized every year. You get more junk off the property. And then number two, you more precisely identify value from your customers every year. You get to know them deeper and you, you deliver more value to them every year. And then uh, third is you'd, with mudas, you'd get rid of even more of the mudas every year. Uh, there's overproduction waste, waiting waste, transportation waste, overprocessing, inventory waste. There's always going to be muda in your operation. And every year you just chink a little bit more off of your farm. So I like this sculpture analogy. It's my favorite analogy for lean is that you're, uh, it's like your farm is a big log and every year you chisel a little more waste off the farm until you have a very beautiful sculpture. Uh, that's pure value. You've chiseled all the waste off of it and you just keep, keep honing it and polishing it. Yeah. And I remember you mentioning that even at Toyota, they had, uh, they had managers that got in trouble because they weren't, changing and updating the standards consistent constantly they weren't continually looking with a really fine eye to be improving the process so this is a never-ending process of improvement like you mentioned and i think that's an important factor there yeah well they used to mandate that once a month the processes had to change at some in some way <laughs> so they mandated change mandated uh, continuous improvement yeah i think that's great and can we talk a little bit about how this lean process affects your staff and the morale around the farm? Uh-huh. Uh, sure. I, uh, what, the thing with uh, Kaizen or continuous improvement is it's often you want it to be an all-staff project. And the reason is your workers are as close to the waste or sometimes closer to the waste as you are. And so there's no reason to, let them, to not let them help you root out the waste. And what Tichi Ono at Toyota, he helped design lean systems, Yoda uses, he used to say that workers come to Toyota to think, not to build cars. Okay, just think about that. They're in a manufacturing plant. Uh, you're often repeating tasks over and over again. But he said, ultimately, people come here to think, not to build cars. And so what it means is that you have engaged staff people who are not just picking tomatoes or stuffing on envelopes. What they are doing is thinking as they're working. And what we do is we keep a list of the waste, a list of the mudas in the center of our processing area. And we instruct our workers. We say, hey, we want you, if you see one of these types of waste, we want to be the first ones to hear it. And we encourage them to kind of ruffle our feathers and to think up a better, better ways of doing things, which is countercultural. In our culture, workers are trained, especially in agriculture, to just go out and pick. And they're, they're not thought of as, uh, as managers. And everyone should take some management responsibility to make the process more efficient. Yeah, I think that's great. And it gives people more ownership 
a feeling of ownership of their space and their job and what they're doing and the importance of it. I think it, for us, I'm finding it's improving morale because people are excited to see these changes as we're making them around our property. Okay. And awesome. one thing I wanted to touch on, uh, because most of the people that are listening to this that are cultivating, uh, that are doing it commercially, so this is their business, it's much easier to cut costs than to grow your profit margin. So like you mentioned, it's a lot easier to reduce $1,000 worth of expenses than it is to sell $2,000 worth of new product. So you can maintain your sales, which I think is something you said you've done over the years, is maintain your sales level, but reduce your expenses, and then that's all money in your pocket. Sure. So to grow more, to produce more product involves Muda. We're going to have the Muda of construction, of another greenhouse, or you know, increasing the, your infrastructure for growing system. You're going to have uh, the Muda of training new workers. There's just a lot of effort that goes into producing more. And you can grow your business also by trimming out costs and waste. And then you don't have to deal with all those mudas. You can just save money and, 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 and add to your bottom line. So uh, the very simple secret of our farm is that we've been making, we've been uh, grossing six figures for a, for a while. Uh, however, we haven't always uh, netted a whole lot. So what we had started to do is every year uh, we print out an expense lecture. And we say, we ask the question, hey, where's the 5%? In other words, how can we trim 5% off of our expense ledger and still produce this same or more next year? And who couldn't, you know, scour the expense ledger and come up with 5%? And so if you do this over a course of 10 years, which we have, then you grow your business by 50%, which is a very respectable rate of growth. You grow your net profit by that much. And you didn't have to produce more in the process. And so it's pure, it's pure profit. And I think that at some point, all businesses need new customers, need more customers and need to expand. It just is become, it becomes a, it becomes an addiction in our culture. And there's another way to grow a business, which is to cut out the mudas and, and get more precise on adding value too. So every year we try to replace low profit items with higher profit items and, and give our customers more value so that uh, so that our, we charge more for our products and we're getting more from our customers for the same amount of effort. Yeah, that's a great point. One concrete example for me was also working with the people that we buy things from or that we work with. So for me, changing or renegotiating my merchant service rate on credit cards made a difference of almost $15,000 in a year. And, you know, that's money that I get to put back towards the farm, towards my employees, uh, not into the pocket of a merchant service provider. So... Uh, uh-huh. expenses are huge. And I think that's one place that uh, we need to look at it. And I love how thoughtful you are before you make a change on your farm, because a lot of times we're running around so crazy. Um, we don't, we don't take the time to really give thought to the process or even to buying a new tool or a new piece of equipment. We just are constantly trying to move forward without evaluating. Do we need this? Is this the best tool for the job? Is this adding the value? All the questions that you're asking uh, in your book are just so important. Um, now, one thing you mentioned at the end of the book that I think is interesting is that lean is a style of uh, a style of cultivation or an attitude towards farming, but it can be taken too far. Can you can you talk a little about what that looks like and what you meant meant in that section? Well, I think in particular, like let's say you're dealing with you're you're an animal you're a you're a protein producer you uh, you raise animals and 
Uh, so what one of the core tenets of lean is you want to maximize your fixed cost. And so fixed cost for me would be a greenhouse or processing yeah, fixed cost for a hog producer would be be a hog house. And, and so what lean would su suggest is that you want to stuff as many hogs as possible into the hog house. And I've seen lean use this way in agriculture uh, with milk production. Uh, and you want to get as many gallons of milk out of that animal as possible. And you're going to maximize the investment you have in the animal. And I think there are just some ethical considerations you need to use in, in farming if you're going to uh, use the lean system. And I would also suggest that farmers who try to stuff as many hogs as possible in their hog house uh, are not probably applying a value analysis uh, as lean would suggest they should. In other words, are they act, are their customers actually wanting them to, to do that? Is that the process their customers want? And lean says, like I said, start with a customer, work backwards from the customer. And so uh, that'd be one, one example. And on, uh, with food, per, uh, with, uh, vegetable or grain crop producers, I think it, there are all kinds of ways to, uh, use more fossil fuels on our farms to increase production. And again, I think we have to ask, is this what our customers are wanting? Is this, is this what our, the process our community wants? Anyhow, you can't take lean too far on a, in an agricultural context. I totally agree. In fact, uh, an example of this on our end would be, you know, choosing where we source the ingredients that we put into our soils, for example, because we manufacture soils. And knowing, to me, I know our customers value using high-quality ingredients. So if I were to go out and source a cheaper ingredient in, th in that mix, uh, it wouldn't be providing value even though it would be lowering my expenses because it might lower the quality of my actual product. So it, it's really important to look at that. And like you mentioned, ethics is so important here. We're, you know, we're trying to protect the environment. We're trying to come up with sustainable methods. And conventional agriculture isn't necessarily all that sustainable. And I think that's where it falls down in relation to lean manufacturing concepts. Uh, yeah, cost cutting is not necessarily lean. Cost cutting can be very unlean. Uh, if it's not the type of, if it's not, if it doesn't steer your business in the direction what your customers are wanting. Yeah. So the last question I had for you was, uh, as I mentioned to you, this is a cannabis cultivation show, and I know you're not able to ca cultivate cannabis, but is there anything you'd like to add or touch on on the topic before we sign off for the day? I would say that it'd be great if Indiana would, and, and actually we've been working on it, and Indiana is, they're talking about some legislation now that would make medical marijuana available. But um, I think that the process that lean system is a universe. I want to close with saying lean system is a universal system in that the types of waste are uh, prevalent in any type of business. And so there's no reason you can't use lean with, and even if you grow one marijuana plant uh, or if you have tens of thousands of, of plants, uh, the lean system is applicable no matter what size business you have, how many workers you have or who your customer is. Uh, there's something you can gain from it and you can become more profitable and you can create a more pleasant work environment for yourself. Yeah, I think it's so important because we want to spend our time doing other things. Like this allows you more free time to spend with your family and more time to spend doing things that you want to be doing. Uh, not that you don't love your work, but finding ways to reduce your expenses, increase your bottom line, and make yourself make your life more efficient, I think is a win all around. So uh, I just want to say again, uh, Ben has two books out. I'll put links to both of them on the podcast page and uh, as well as some photos and other things. But 
I, I highly recommend people check out your books and I really appreciate you taking the time today to come on the podcast and chat with me about lean farming. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. That was Ben Hartman, author of The Lean Farm and The Lean Farm Guide to Growing Vegetables. I can't recommend his books enough, and I hope listeners will incorporate at least one aspect of lean farming into your growing practices as a way of becoming more efficient and reducing waste. You're listening to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey. Don't forget that there's more information and articles available on our website and blog at www.kisorganics.com, as well as links to the data and information we discussed in this episode on the podcast page. And if you enjoy these podcasts, please take a moment to leave me a rating and review on iTunes and send me your feedback and suggestions through our website contact page or tad at kisorganics.com. Thanks for listening.